Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sold? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, well, friends, it is a fantastic passage, isn't it? What a high point of our journey through Romans. We'll get to the passage itself in a moment, but of course you'll all, I'm sure most of us will be aware that the Olympic Games are upon us. Uh, everyone's, uh, I, I don't know if you saw the opening ceremony yesterday morning, I'm not sure if anyone stayed up through the night watching it. Any bleary eyes out there this morning? I know there was a couple. Of, yeah, there was a couple of hockey games on last night, so I thought some of our hockey players might have stayed up. But no, uh, of course the Olympic Games are on us. And one of the, uh, if you're watching it a lot, uh, one of the things you'll see a lot is this. If you can flick onto the next slide, you'll see this symbol all over the place. Right, it's the famous swoosh of the brand Nike or Nike. I'm never quite sure. Doesn't everyone have a strong opinion about whether it's Nike or Nike? I can't. I don't know. It's Nike. I'll say. Okay. It's Nike. Okay. I'll say Nike from now on. I couldn't figure it out. So Nike's uh, uh, is the, the famous kind of uh, swoosh. And, and if you were watching during the opening ceremony, you would have seen a, perhaps Nike's ad. The, the most latest ad that Nike's got out. Yeah, its most recent ad campaign is called Unlimited. Unlimited. It plays off its well-known tagline, just do it, you know, Nike, just do it. Uh, but it takes it even further. Some guy smashes through the just do it. And uh, anyway, the, it, if you see the ad, the claim about, uh, its claim is, uh, I'm sort of reading from the Nike website, the claim is that life isn't about finding your limits, it's about realising you have none. Think about that for a minute. Life isn't about realising your limits. Finding your limits, it's about realising you have none. And if you've seen the ad, uh, it's kind of stirring stuff. It's inspiring, incredible to watch. And to be honest, it is incredible, isn't it? Watching things like the Olympic Games, incredible to see people do these amazing things with their bodies. Um, but you do have to wonder, I think, how realistic this kind of view of life is, how sustainable it is, um, to believe that life really has no limits, that, that life is not about realising your... You, what, what was it? No, life is not about finding your limits, it's about realising that you have none. Um, I'm probably overthinking it, but maybe I'm not. Uh, in a recent issue of a major US magazine, the columnist reflects on this kind of approach to life that really characterises a lot of um, 21st century Western... 
approach to life. Columnist reflects on it, uh, this idea that everyone can smash their limits, achieve their dreams if they only believe in themselves enough. Uh, the columnist says, this uh, she sort of gets feedback from, or gets correspondence, and she says, uh, every day she gets emails from young people who feel guilty and inadequate at every turn. They compare themselves relentlessly to others. They are turned inside out day after day by social media. Now, you can see how it works, right? If life is about achieving your dreams through believing in yourself, then the moment that things don't turn out to be great, the moment you don't turn out to get your dreams, who is to blame? You are. Of course you are. You haven't believed enough in yourself. You haven't followed the right steps. Of course, there are religious versions of the same philosophy, what gets called the prosperity gospel, if you're familiar with that. Uh, The prosperity gospel claims that you should be living your best life now uh, and that if you have enough faith, if you follow these seven steps, you can achieve your dreams, you can live your life at its full potential now. Uh, It has the same effect as its secular counterpart, I think, what another writer calls this tangled web of angst. Uh, I've never been sure if you've believed hard enough. Never been sure if you've followed the steps closely enough. The nagging sense that you're not living up to your life at its full potential. Well, friends, if you were here last week, I felt really refreshed, and perhaps some of you did too, to hear Romans 8, verse 18 to 30, that kind of chunk of text before this great passage, it was so, I think it's a really refreshing thing actually to hear that. Remember from last week? All about groaning and suffering and weakness and longing. Uh, this groaning that we experience in this life is not something to be overcome, that we can overcome by our own positive thinking or by following our own seven steps. It is part and parcel of living in this world, in this fallen world. There is no such thing as our best life here and now. This present age is marked by suffering. The glory that is ours through Jesus is glory that is to come. That's what we kind of looked at last week. But, here's the the but, okay? That's kind of to set you all up. But, while it's possible to, it is possible, and I think actually devastating to Uh, expect too much from this life. The question I think that this passage raises for us is, is it also possible to expect too little? Is it also possible, perhaps in reaction to the unrealistic and unbiblical promise of victory and perfection here and now, we can kind of react and flip to the other end of the spectrum and basically see life as one big plod. I say this as a lifelong plodder. I quite happily plot along in life. And friends, when you come to know the grace of God in Jesus, that life is not about performing uh, because Jesus has performed for you in your place because he has done it all. It means that you can plod along without this crushing burden of 
expectation of excellence or perfection or having to have the best right now, and there is something right and so wonderful about that and liberating. But uh, if that's all that I think of in the Christian life, it seems to me it doesn't quite match up to what's written here in Romans 8. This idea of me as a just, I'm just plodding along. Nothing too exciting happening here. See, the interesting thing about Nike uh, that we started with, uh, it's named after a Greek goddess. You might know the Greek goddess Victory. Uh, the word means conqueror or victor. Uh, and you, you can't see it in your, the Bibles in front of you, but it's actually a word that's in our passage today. Um, and actually, it's not just the word Nike. It's a kind of a, a combination word that kind of means super Nike, <laughs> super victor. What gets translated in your Bibles in verse 37 as more than conquerors. More than conquerors. Super conquerors. Utterly, overwhelmingly, complete victors. Now, friends, what's going on here? Especially if you kind of journeyed through last week's passage, uh, looking at the, the, the certain reality of brokenness, of groaning, of suffering. And then we get to this passage in Roman, at the end of Romans 8 and Paul is talking about this incredible overwhelming victory this super conquering what's the Apostle Paul mean by this and how is this different from any other kind of victory, the victory of the brand Nike uh, or any other kind of view like that well friends, I th I'm hoping that that's what we're going to see as we read through this passage together and as we hear it together, as we sit under its teaching for us. Uh, you can see that on your handout there that'll help you just to sort of give you a framework for where we're going. It's got a little bit of an outline of the talk. And the first thing that Paul says there in Romans 8 verse 31, as we kind of think about all these things, uh, Paul himself says, what then shall we say in response to these things? It's kind of Paul's way of taking a bit of a pause at this point. We've been kind of climbing a mountain. We've had a few, few pauses along the way, the mountains of Romans. Uh, and at this point, he takes another bit of a pause. He says, what can we say in response to these things? I take it that when he says these things, that kind of means everything you said up to this point, uh, especially the last few chapters. But I think it takes in the whole letter. What are we going to say in response to everything that we've seen? The whole letter up to this point, if everything he's written is true, so what? What are we going to say in response to these things? And he uses, Paul uses four words, really, I think, to summarise everything that he's written up to now. You can see it there in verse 31. What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, God is for us. That's the kind of first part of this, this statement, this question. If God is for us, that for Paul is the logical conclusion of his gospel, his great gospel. 
God, the creator and sustainer of all things, is right now for us. He does want what is best for us. He has brought us into his family by his spirit. And he is for us. Like a dad is for his kids. He is for us. And so Paul's question is, if that's true, if that's where Romans 1 to 8 verse 30 leads you to say with Paul that God is for us, if that's true, well, he asks the question, who can be against us? And you know the answer, right? <laughs> the answer is obvious. If God is for us, no one can be against us. You can see out there in the, hand, in the handout, if you've got it, um, I think what Paul does here is he goes on to uh, outline, to, he shows the way, how God is for us, and he does it in two parts. That's how we'll kind of look through the rest of the passage. Two big themes. God being for us is shown through what he has done, through his, what he's achieved for us in Jesus, and secondly, it's shown to us through his love in Jesus. And we're going to kind of move through those relatively quickly and try and think about this together at the end. If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, Paul kind of sets up this cosmic court scene. He, he, he kind of, uh, this idea of someone being against you, it's like this big court scene, right? And you're all sitting there, okay? When everything's said and done, if your life is being weighed in the balance, everything is said and done, imagine a prosecuting attorney, right? He's kind of pointing his finger at you. He's firing off his accusations against you. And Paul asks, if God is for us, who can do that? Uh, he goes on, who can be against us? He, he asks a number of questions through this passage. You can see it there in verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? And each time, really this is the big thing to take away, I think, from this section. Do you see what Paul does? Each time he answers these questions with the cross of Christ. Each time he answers these questions with what he has done, what he has achieved in Jesus, what God has achieved through Jesus' death and resurrection. So if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? See what Paul's doing here? It's kind of like, if you buy a really expensive present for someone, right? A $10,000 necklace, okay? Um, if you buy something that's obscenely expensive, right, this wonderfully expensive gift, you're not going to balk at buying a box to put it in, are you? You're not going to kind of say, oh, I'm not sure if I can stretch the extra 50 bucks to get the box, right? It's, I think it's a bit like that going on here. If, if God has given up his only son who he loves, if he has given up his only son for us, well, how could he not also along with him give us all things? That's just the, the box that goes along with it. Of course he'll give us that. And what are the all things here? If you remember back to last week, just before this passage, in verse 30, there's this 
unbreakable chain of those who have been predestined by God, uh, who've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, those who are predestined are also called, are also justified, and are also glorified. And I think, I think what Paul's saying here is uh, everything you need to get there, everything you need to be conformed to the image of his son, everything you need to share in his glory, everything you need, God will give you. Nothing is going to get in the way of that. That's just the box that comes on the outside of the expensive jewel inside. Of course God's going to get you there. Verse 33, this next accusation, right? The prosecuting attorney. Who who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Is there someone who's going to charge us? It is God who justifies. And we've seen this all the way through, right? God has justified us, made us right through Jesus' death. Uh, He's justified everyone who he has chosen. So who can bring any charge? Do you see what's going on here? The charge has already been brought against Jesus. It's been fully satisfied in him. If we're in him, if we're connected to Jesus, if we're united to him by faith, there is no charge that's left for us. There is no charge... Nothing to bring against us. Who can be against us? No one. Who can bring any charge? There is no charge left. God has justified us already in Christ. Who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus not only died for our sin, he was raised to new life, He has defeated death and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father and he speaks for us. Last week we heard of the Spirit speaking for us. The Son, Jesus, speaks for us too and so no one can condemn us. Friends, this is the great declaration of Paul that God is for us. God is for us. It is not some nice idea that Paul clings to when he feels really bad, right? It's not a wish. It's not something he wishes were true. It is sure and certain. Do you see why he anchors it always in what God has done in the cross? It is sure and certain because it's been, God is for us and it's been proven. It's been shown in history. God has shown that he is for us through what he did in Jesus. But the next part, the last kind of half of this passage, takes it even further. It's kind of like Paul here is climbing a bit of a staircase. There's one here. Just imagine a much bigger staircase. He's climbing up and each time he's adding something else. And now with this last question, he kind of gets to the top of the staircase. It's so important. This last question, this last section, the last part of this, this, this um, passage... It's so important. It shows that God is for us, but he's for us not just through some thing that he did, right? It's not just some impersonal thing about God. He's done this stuff for us, so we know that he's kind of on our side. It's not an impersonal thing. God is for us. It's much deeper than that. It's not just some impersonal transaction, God is for us and he's shown it on the cross. He is not only for us in some impersonal way, but 
through deeply personal and real love for us. That's what you get in that second half of this passage. He's shown us his, that he's for us, but verse 35, this last question at the top of the, the series of questions, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? You see how Christ and God are kind of interchangeable here? God gave up his son for us, but Jesus wasn't just an unwilling victim who kind of went because he really, really had to. No, he, he, he went willingly because in the unity of the Trinity that we sung about earlier, God, Father, Son and Spirit, God is love. And God, what God has done in Christ shows his love as God. Uh, so who will separate us from this love, from this love of Christ? Friends, there are lots of options that you could think of at this point, aren't there? I mean, what, you know, it's worth thinking about that for you. What separates you from the love of Christ? Uh, perhaps for you it's, well, it could be any range of things, right? Whatever hardship that you face in life, uh, perhaps it is the kind of coldness you feel in your own heart at times towards God. Perhaps you feel that that separates you from his love for you. Perhaps, well, there's all sorts of different reasons why we might kind of be sep- feel like we're separated from God's love. Paul goes on, though, to give us some pretty good options. Let's hear him out. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Friends, we heard last week about suffering, right? But here, I think Paul adds another element to this suffering, or he goes deeper into one part of it. Not just a kind of general suffering, not just the groaning that we experience because we're living in a broken and fallen world, but the kind of direct suffering that comes from living in a world that's hostile to the gospel, The direct suffering that comes from living in a world that hates Jesus, that's hostile to the gospel. And if there's anything that threatens to separate us from the love of Christ, surely it's this. Opposition for being his person. However you experience that, whether it's at school or whether it's at work or whether it's with your friends, this kind of opposition for being God's person. There is a kind of opposition that we do face here in Australia. I think the the kind of opposition you get if you speak about the reality of God and sin and forgiveness. And uh, but it can be hard to find a bit hard to relate to what Paul says here, can't it? For us, to the kind of extreme language Paul uses here. Uh, What does he say? Hardship or persecution, yes, we can kind of relate. Famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Not many of us are going to do that for Jesus' sake, at least not in our current circumstances. But we have many brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who know exactly what Paul's talking about here. Uh, There's a photo that should come up if we can get that 
uh, that photo up of uh, an Ethiopian girl called Miriam. Uh, her dad was killed by Islamic extremists in, in, Ethiopia, in Ethiopia. He was killed for his eagerness to share about Jesus when she, was, you know, she only has a few memories of her dad. Uh, and there's a, if you go to the Open Doors website, you can see a video of Miriam and her mum uh, talking about their kind of uh, their experience, and it's you know it goes into some pretty horrific details actually about the kinds of things that they've been through. Uh, but Miriam's story is one of many countless ones actually, uh, and Paul says in here in Romans eight, can any of this? Can any of this separate us from the love of Christ? And he says a resounding no. Verse 37. In all these things, in all these things, in all trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We are super Nike we are overwhelming conquerors, victors, through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, do you get the picture? <laughs> really, 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 nothing, nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. On the video, if you look it up, after hearing about the brutal things they've done, they've gone through for following Jesus, Miriam gives this simple testimony, and it's so powerful. She simply says, it's just a couple of lines, right, here's this young girl who's been through such horrific things for the sake of Jesus, and at the end of the video she says clearly and simply, I love God. He loves me. I know he feeds my spirit and gives me what I need. I love God. He loves me. I know he feeds my spirit and gives me what I need. Friends, that is being more than a conqueror. Being a super conqueror. Being so deeply assured of the love of God for you that after everything you can say, God is for us. God is for me. He loves me. And nothing can separate me from his love. Well, friends, we started thinking about this, uh, I guess, in our world, a kind of um, longing for victory, a longing to be a conqueror. Uh, Nike plays off that, right? Uh, I'm not having a go at them. They're just really reflecting what's a broader thing in our culture. Uh, but their gospel is to be a conqueror through, as we saw at the start, through self-belief, through grit, through hard work, and ultimately through buying their shoes. Okay? Um, other versions, more religious kind of versions of this, I think say the same thing in the end. Be a conqueror through these seven steps, through having the right experiences and maybe through buying a book or two. Is that too cynical? Sorry. Um, there's all sorts of ways in which we can think about all this. It's a really strong thing, I think, in our culture. And I've got to admit, friends, I've really struggled to prepare 
to kind of, I guess, finish off this passage for us. It's been such a long journey through Romans 1 to 8, and now we get what is really one of the most wonderful things ever written, right? That's been quite overwhelming to me. I, you know, it seems anything I say will be so small in comparison. But I do want to just share two brief reflections on all of this and how that kind of might impact on our own lives. Two things for what it means for us to share in the glorious victory that is ours through Jesus. And not only in the age to come, the focus last week, right, was the age to come, the coming glory, but here I think it does talk about the way in which we are here today, we share in this victory here and now. Okay, two things, and then um, I'll leave uh, you with God's word to meditate on and apply to your own lives. First thing, I want to finish with, and I think that this is key, actually. We are more than conquerors. The second half of that little phrase, we must not live out. We are not more than conquerors through our own efforts. We are not more than conquerors through ourselves. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice that's in the past, who loved us, who has loved us fully and completely and finally at the cross. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There's an old hymn that I think captures this. Uh, Just read a couple of lines from it. Let me no more my comfort draw from my frail hold of thee. In this alone rejoice with awe. Thy mighty grasp of me. Read it out again. Let me no more my comfort draw from my frail hold of thee. In this alone rejoice with awe. Thy mighty grasp of me. He has loved us. We are more than conquerors through him. This great victory that is ours, that we are completely assured of in this life. See, this is where... Perhaps the philosophy of Nike that's just aping the philosophy of our culture gets it wrong. The great victory ultimately is not material. It's not, it's not this life, you having all your dreams fulfilled and living to your full potential. It's actually something much more wonderful than that. Much more wonderful than that. Unlike those things, it's something that can never be taken away. Because it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on how good you are, how closely you follow the steps. It doesn't depend on how, how much you believe in yourself. It doesn't depend on you and it can never be taken away. You see, the great victory in the Christian life is the love of God that has been given to you in Christ and that nothing can ever take away from you. First thing... We share in this glorious victory we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Second thing I just want to finish with, and it really flows out of the first, and I I didn't notice this for ages, actually until early this morning. Uh, I didn't notice this, but the more I I, I think about it, it actually has helped me to kind of bring it all together. Uh, This passage could be a really burdensome one if we read it the wrong way, I think. It could be a heavy weight around our shoulders, this passage. 
Me more than a conqueror? Sure. Yeah, right. I mean, if you knew me, come on. What a heavy burden to place on me. But I think this is so important. This is what I've kind of wanted to share. Uh, Did you notice as we go through that there is no call to action here? This is not a call to action. What I mean by that, Paul is not saying become more than a conqueror. He is not saying be more than a conqueror. He is simply and wonderfully describing the reality of the Christian life. Paul isn't calling us to become more than hyper-conquerors. Whether you're a plotter like me who lives in constant confusion about life or whether you're an A-type personality who just can't wait to take on the world or whether you're somewhere in between those two things, it's got nothing to do with that, actually, in the end. It's not to do with your personality. It's not to do with your circumstance. It's nothing to do with how disciplined you are or impressive you are. If you're in Christ, if your trust is in him, if you have his spirit, then the simple reality is that you are more than a conqueror. You are a super conqueror. Not because of you, right? We've got that clear on the way through. Not because of anything about you. But that's what makes it so great. Because you're in Christ. Because you're... Attached to him because you share in his sufferings so that you might also share in his glory. A couple of things maybe to encourage us with and to take away with. There's so much richness in there though, isn't there? You see, Romans 1 to 8, we have seen, and we'll reflect more on this next week, the whole, the whole thing, uh, has outlined the gospel for us in such stunning depth. Uh, Paul, if you remember right at the start, Paul started by saying he's not ashamed of the gospel. And it kind of, in a way, comes full circle here. The rest of the Romans is really important, and as I said, we'll get there. Uh, Romans doesn't end here, but in a way, he does kind of come full circle and comes back to this idea. Uh, he's not ashamed of the gospel, and now, having journeyed through one, Romans 1 to 8, perhaps we can see, perhaps we can even feel why that's the case. That he's not ashamed. He knows through Jesus he has been loved so deeply and fully and perfectly that it can never, never be taken away. He knows that if God is for him, nothing can be against him. And he knows that that is true of every single Christian person. Every single person who trusts in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin and for their future hope. Friends, we have a wonderful gospel to proclaim. We have a word of life for the South Coast. Even if speaking of Jesus means perhaps a little hardship. Friends, even if it meant famine, nakedness, sword or death. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For Paul was convinced... No, let's perhaps each of us put our own kind of I in there. For I am convinced, because of the first part of this passage, because of what God has done through Jesus, because we know it for sure, he has died and, died and been raised again, I am convinced 
that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together, shall we? Pray. Father, we've really just peered into things that are so um, beyond us and deep and wonderful. Uh, they seem at times too wonderful to grasp. Lord, give us faith to hear this word and to receive it. And to, Lord, may your spirit take it and make it alive in our hearts that we will share in this confidence, not in ourselves, but in you and your great love for us that's been expressed in Christ and that we share in here and now, whatever will come. Lord, make us the kind of people who... Please, Lord, make us the kind of people who are so convinced about your love uh, that we even do things that may put us in hardship for the sake of this love, for the sake of sharing the great news of Jesus with this community, for the sake of living in it more and more, for the sake of investing ourselves in this church family. Uh, Father, we thank you for this wonderful wonderful encouragement from your word today. Um, please take it and uh, may it dwell within us richly through this week. In Jesus' name, amen.